Part five of the Book of the National Parks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Book of the National Parks by Robert Sterling Yard. Yosemite, the Incomparable, continued. Three. Every summer many thousands of visitors gather in Yosemite. Most of them, of course, come tourist fashion, to glimpse it all in a day or two or three. A few thousands come for long enough to taste most of it, or really to see a little. Fewer, but still increasingly many, are those who come to live a little with Yosemite. Among these we find the lovers of nature, the poets, the seers, the dreamers, and the students. Living is very pleasant in the Yosemite. The freedom from storm during the long season, the dry warmth of the days and the coldness of the nights, the inspiration of the surroundings and the completeness of the equipment for the comfort of visitors make it extraordinary among mountain resorts. There is a hotel in the valley, and another upon the rim at Glacier Point. There are three large hotel camps in the valley, where one may have hotel comforts under canvas at camp prices. Two of these hotel camps possess swimming pools, dancing pavilions, tennis courts electrically lighted for night play, hot and cold water tubs and showers, and excellent table service. One of the hotel camps, the largest, provides evening lectures, song services, and a general atmosphere suggestive of Chautauqua. Still a third is for those who prefer quiet retirement and their tradition of an old-fashioned camp life. Above the valley rim, besides the excellent hotel upon Glacier Point, there are at this writing hotel camps equipped with many hotel comforts, including baths, at such outlying points as Merced Lake and Tanyana Lake, the former centering the mountain-climbing and trout-fishing of the stupendous region on the southwest slope of the park, and the latter the key to the entire magnificent region of the Tuolome. These camps are reached by mountain trail, Tanyana Lake Camp also by motor road. The hotel camp system is planned for wide extension as growing demand warrants. There are also hotels outside park limits on the south and west which connect with the park roads and trails. The roads, by the way, are fair. Three enter from the west, centering at Yosemite Village in the valley, one from the south by way of the celebrated Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias, one from El Portal, terminus of the Yosemite Railway, and one from the north by way of several smaller sequoia groves connecting directly with the Tioga Road. Above the valley rim and north of it, the Tioga Road crosses the National Park and emerges at Mono Lake on the east, having crossed the Sierra over Tioga Pass on the park boundary. The Tioga Road, which was built in 1881 on the site of the Mono Trail, to connect a gold mine west of what has since become the National Park, with roads east of the Sierra, was purchased in 1915 by patriotic lovers of the Yosemite and given to the government. The mine having soon failed, the road had been impassable for many years. Repaired with government money, it has become the principal highway of the park and the key to its future development. The increase in motor travel to Yosemite from all parts of the country, which began the summer following the Great War, has made this gift one of growing importance. It affords a new route across the Sierra. But hotels and hotel camps, while accommodating the great majority of visitors, by no means shelter all. Those who camp out under their own canvas are likely to be Yosemite's most appreciative devotees. The camping-out colony lives in riverside groves in the upper reaches of the valley, the government assigning locations without charge. Many families make permanent summer homes here, storing equipment between seasons in the village. Others hire equipment complete, from tents to salt cellars, on the spot. 
some who come to the hotels finish the season under hired canvas and next season come with their own an increasing number come in cars which they keep in local garages or park near their canvas homes living is easy and not expensive in these camp homes midday temperatures are seasonable and nights are always cool as it does not rain tents are concessions to habit many prefer sleeping under the trees markets in the village supply meats vegetables milk bread and groceries at prices regulated by government and deliver them at your kitchen tent shops furnish all other reasonable needs it is not camping out as commonly conceived you are living at home on the banks of the merced under the morning shadow of half dome and within sight of yosemite falls from these valley homes one rides into the high sierra on horses hired from the government concessioner tours to the tuolome meadows or the mariposa grove by automobile wanders long summer afternoons in the valley climbs the great rocks and domes picnics by moonlight under the shimmering falls or beneath the shining tower of el capitan explores famous fishing waters above the rim and on frivolous evenings dances or looks at motion pictures at the greater hotel camps no wonder that camp homes in the yosemite are growing in popularity four the trail traveler finds the trails the best in the country and as good as the best in the world they are the models for the national system competent guides horses supplies and equipment are easy to hire at regulated prices in the village as for the field there is none nobler or more varied in the world there are dozens of divides scores of towering snow-splashed peaks hundreds of noble valleys and shining lakes thousands of cascading streams great and small from whose depths fighting trout rise to the cast fly there are passes to be crossed which carry one through concentric cirques of tooth granite to ridges from which the high sierra spreads before the eye a frothing sea of snowy peaks such a trip is that through the tuolome meadows up lyle canyon to its headwaters over the sierra at donahue pass and up into the birth chambers of rivers among the summit glaciers of lyle and mcclure a never-to-be-forgotten journey which may be continued if one has time and equipment down the john muir trail to mount whitney and the sequoia national park or one may return to the park by way of banner peak and thousand island lake a wonder spot and thence north over Parker and Mono Passes. Trips like these produce views as magnificent as the land possesses. Space does not permit even the suggestion of the possibilities to the trail traveler of this wonderland above the rim. It is the summer playground for a nation. Second in magnificence among the park valleys is Hetch Hetchy, the Yosemite of the north. Both are broad, flowered, and forested levels between lofty granite walls both are accented by gigantic rock personalities kalana rock which guards hetch hetchy at its western gateway as el capitan guards yosemite must be ranked in the same class were there no yosemite valley hetch hetchy though it lacks the distinction which gives yosemite valley its worldwide fame would be much better known than it is now a statement also true about other features of the national park hetch hetchy is now being dammed below kalana rock to supply water for San Francisco. The dam will be hidden from common observation, and the timber lands to be flooded will be cut so as to avoid the unsightliness usual with artificial reservoirs in forested areas. The reservoir will cover one of the most beautiful bottoms in America. It will destroy forests of luxuriance. It will replace these with a long, sinuous lake, from which sheer Yosemite-like granite walls will rise abruptly two or three thousand feet. 
there will be places where the edges are forested. Down into this lake from the high rim will cascade many roaring streams. The long fight in California, in the press of the whole country, and finally in Congress, between the advocates of the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir and the defenders of the scenic wilderness, is one of the stirring episodes in the history of our national parks. At this writing, time enough has not yet passed to heal the wounds of battle, but at least we may look calmly at what remains. One consideration, at least, affords a little comfort. Hetch Hetchy was once, in late prehistoric times, a natural lake of great nobility. The remains of nature's dam, not far from the site of man's, are plain to the geologist's eye. It is possible that, with care in building the dam and clearing out the trees to be submerged, this restoration of one of nature's noble features of the past may not work out so inappropriately as once we feared. The Grand Canyon of the Tuolum, through which the river descends from the level of the Tuolum Meadows, almost five thousand feet to the Hetch Hetchy Valley, possesses real Yosemite grandeur. Much of this enormous drop occurs within a couple of amazing miles west of the California Falls. Here the river slips down sharply tilted granite slopes at breathless speed, breaking into cascades and plunging over waterfalls at frequent intervals. It is a stupendous spectacle which few but the hardiest mountaineers saw previous to 1918. So steep and difficult was the going. During that season a trail was opened which makes accessible to all one of the most extraordinary examples of plunging water in the world. The climax of this spectacle is the water wheels. Granite obstructions in the bed of the steeply tilted river throw solid arcs of frothing water fifty feet in air. They occur near together, singly, and in groups. 5. The fine camping country south of the Yosemite Valley also offers its sensation. At its most southern point, the park accomplishes its forest climax in the Mariposa Grove. This group of giant sequoias, Sequoia Washingtoniana, ranks next in the number and magnificence of its trees to the giant forest of the Sequoia National Park and the General Grant Grove. The largest tree of the Mariposa Grove is the grizzly giant, which has a diameter of 29 feet, a circumference of 64 feet, and a height of 204 feet. One may guess its age from 3,000 to 3,200 years. It is the third in size and age of living sequoias. General Sherman, the largest and oldest, has a diameter of thirty-six and a half feet, and General Grant a diameter of thirty-five feet, and neither of these, in all probability, has attained the age of four thousand years. General Sherman grows in the Sequoia National Park, seventy miles or more south of Yosemite. General Grant has a little national park of its own, a few miles west of Sequoia. The interested explorer of the Yosemite has so far enjoyed a wonderfully varied sequence of surprises the incomparable valley with its towering monoliths and extraordinary waterfalls, the high sierra with its glaciers, serrated cirques, and sea of snowy peaks, the grand canyon of the Tuolome with its cascades, rushing river, and frothing water-wheels, are but the headliners of a long catalogue of the unexpected and extraordinary. It only remains to complete this new tale of Arabian Nights to make one's first visit to the sequoias of Mariposa Grove, the first sight of the calm, tremendous columns which support the lofty roof of this forest temple, provokes a new sensation. Unconsciously, the visitor removes his hat and speaks his praise in whispers. The sequoias are considered at greater length in the chapter describing the Sequoia National Park, which was created especially to conserve and exhibit more than a million of these most interesting of trees. 
it will suffice here to say that their enormous stems are purplish-red, that their fine lace-like foliage hangs in splendid heavy plumes, that their enormous limbs crook at right angles, the lowest from a hundred to a hundred and fifty feet above the ground, and that all other trees, even the gigantic sugar-pine and Douglas fir, are dwarfed in their presence. Several of the sequoias of the Mariposa Grove approach three hundred feet in height. The road passes through the trunk of one. 6. The human history of the Yosemite is quickly told. The country north of the valley was known from early times by explorers and trappers who used the old Mono Indian Trail, now the Tioga Road, which crossed the divide over Mono Pass. But though the trail approached within a very few miles of the north rim of the Yosemite Valley, the valley was not discovered till 1851, when Captain Bowling of the Mariposa Battalion, a volunteer organization for the protection of settlers, entered it from the west in pursuit of Indians who had raided mining settlements in the foothills. These savages were known as the Yosemite, or Grizzly Bear Indians. Tanyana, their chief, met their pursuers on the uplands and besought them to come no further. But Captain Bowling pushed on through the heavy snows, and on March 21st entered the valley, which proved to be the Indians' final stronghold. Their villages, however, were deserted. The original inhabitants of the valley were called the Awaniches, the Indian name for the valley being Awani, meaning a deep grassy canyon. The Awaniches, previous to Captain Bowling's expedition, had been decimated by war and disease. The new tribe, the Yosemites, or grizzly bears, was made up of their remainder, with Manos and Paiutes added. Captain Bowling's report of the beauty of the valley having been questioned, he returned during the summer to prove his assertions to a few doubters. Nevertheless, there were no further visitors until 1853, when Robert B. Stinson of Mariposa led in a hunting party. Two years later, J. M. Hutchings, who was engaged in writing up the beauties of California for the California magazine, brought the first tourists. The second, a party of sixteen, followed later the same year. Pleasure travel to the Yosemite Valley may be said to have commenced with 1856, the year the first house was built. This house was enlarged in 1858 by Height and Beardsley and used for a hotel. Sullivan and Cushman secured it for a debt the following year, and it was operated in turn by Peck, Longhurst, and Hutchings until 1871. Meantime, J. C. Lehman settled in 1860, the first actual resident of the valley, an honor which he did not share with others for four years. The fame of the valley spread over the country, and in 1864 Congress granted to the state of California the cleft or gorge of the granite peak of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, known as the Yosemite Valley, with the understanding that all income derived from it should be spent for improving the reservation or building a road to it. The Mariposa Big Tree Grove was also granted at the same time. California carefully fulfilled her charge. The Yosemite Valley became world famous, and in 1890 the Yosemite National Park was created. 7. The Yosemite's geological history is much more thrilling. Everyone who sees it asks, how did nature make the Yosemite Valley? Was it split by earth convulsions or scooped by a glacier? Few ask what part was played by the gentle Merced. The question of Yosemite's making has busy geologists from Professor Whitney of the University of California, who first studied the problem, down to F. E. Mathis of the United States Geological Survey, whose recent exhaustive studies have furnished the final solution. Professor Whitney maintained that glaciers never had entered the valley. He did not even consider water erosion, 
At one time he held that the valley was simply a cleft or rent in the earth's crust. At another time he imagined it formed by the sudden dropping back of a large block in the course of the convulsions that resulted in the uplift of the Sierra Nevada. Galen Clark, following him, carried on his idea of an origin by force. Instead of the walls being cleft apart, however, he imagined the explosion of close-set domes of molten rock the riving power, but conceived that ice and water erosion finished the job. With Clarence King, the theory of glacial origin began its long career. John Muir carried this theory to its extreme. Since the period of Muir speculations, the tremendous facts concerning the part played by erosion in the modification of the Earth's surface strata have been developed. Beginning with W. H. Turner, a group of Yosemite students under the modern influence worked upon the theory of the stream-cut valley modified by glaciers. The United States Geological Survey then entered the field, and Mathis's minute investigations followed. The manuscript of his monograph has helped me reconstruct the dramatic past. The fact is that the Yosemite Valley was cut from the solid granite nearly to its present depth by the Merced River, before the glaciers arrived. The river-cut valley was 2,400 feet deep opposite El Capitan, and 3,000 feet deep opposite Eagle Peak. The valley was then V-shaped, and the present waterfalls were cascades. Those which are now the Yosemite Falls were 1,800 feet deep, and those of Sentinel Creek were 2,000 feet deep. All this in pre-glacial times. Later on, the glaciers of several successive epochs greatly widened the valley, and measurably deepened it, making it U-shaped. The cascades then became waterfalls. But none will see the Yosemite Valley and its cavernous tributary canyons without sympathizing a little with the early geologists. It is difficult to imagine a gash so tremendous cut into solid granite by anything short of force. One can think of it gouged by massive glaciers, but to imagine it cut by water is at first inconceivable. To comprehend it, we must first consider two geological facts. The first is that no dawdling modern Merced cut this chasm, but a torrent considerably bigger, and that this roaring river swept at tremendous speed down a sharply tilted bed, which it gouged deeper and deeper by friction of the enormous masses of sand and granite fragments which it carried down from the high Sierra. The second geological fact is that the Merced and Tenyana torrents sandpapered the deepening beds of these canyons day and night for several million years, which when we remember the mile-deep canyons which the Colorado River and its confluence cut through a thousand or more miles of Utah and Arizona, is not beyond human credence, if not conception. But, objects the skeptical, the Merced couldn't keep always tilted. In time it would cut down to a level and slow up, then the sand and gravel it was carrying would settle, and the stream stop its digging. Again, if the stream-cut valley theory is correct, why isn't every Sierra Canyon a Yosemite? Let us look for the answer in the Sierra's history. The present Sierra Nevada is not the first mountain chain upon its site. The granite which underlay the folds of the first Sierra are still disclosed in the walls of the Yosemite Valley. The granites which underlay the second and modern Sierra are seen in the towering heights of the crest. Once these mountains overran a large part of our present far west, they formed a level and very broad and high plateau, or more accurately, they tended to form such a plateau, but never quite succeeded, because its central section kept caving and sinking in some of its parts as fast as it lifted in others. Finally, in the course, perhaps, of several millions of years, the entire central section settled several thousand feet lower 
than its eastern and western edges. These edges it left standing steep and high. This sunken part is the great basin of today. The remaining eastern edge is the Wasatch Mountains. The remaining western edge is the Sierra. That is why the Sierra's eastern front rises so precipitously from the deserts of the Great Basin, while its western edge slopes gradually toward the Pacific. But other crust changes accompanied the sinking of the Great Basin. The principal one was the rise in a series of upward movements of the remaining crest of the Sierra. These movements may have corresponded with the sinkings of the Great Basin. Both were due to tremendous internal readjustments. And, of course, whenever the Sierra crest lifted, it tilted more sharply the whole granite block of which it was the eastern edge. These successive tiltings are what kept the Merced and Tanyana channels always so steeply inclined that, for millions of years, the streams remained torrents swift enough to keep on sandpapering their beds. The first of these tiltings occurred in that far age which geologists call the Cretaceous. It was inconsiderable, but enough to hasten the speed of the streams and establish general outlines for all time. About the middle of the tertiary period, volcanic eruptions changed all things. Nearly all the valleys except the Yosemite became filled with lava. Even the crest of the range was buried a thousand feet in one place. This was followed by a rise of the Sierra crest a couple of thousand feet, and, of course, a much sharper tilting of the western slopes. The Merced and Tanyana rivers must have rushed very fast indeed during the many thousand years that followed. The most conservative estimate of the duration of the tertiary period is four or five million years, and until its close, volcanic eruptions continued to fill valleys with lava, and the Great Basin kept settling, and the crest of the Sierra went on rising, and with each lifting of the crest, the tilt of the river sharpened, and the speed of the torrents hastened. The canyon deepened during this time from seven hundred to a thousand feet. The Yosemite was then a mountain valley whose sloping sides were crossed by cascades. Then, about the beginning of the Quaternary period, came the biggest convulsion of all. The crest of the Sierra was hoisted, according to Mathis's calculations, as much as eight thousand feet higher in this one series of movements, and the whole Sierra block was again tilted, this time, of course, enormously. For thousands of centuries following, the torrents from Lyles and McClure's melting snows must have descended at a speed which tore boulders from their anchorages, ground rocks into sand, and savagely scraped and scooped the riverbeds. Armed with sharp, hard-cutting tools ripped from the granite cirques of Sierra's crest, these mad rivers must have scratched and hewn deep and fast, and because certain valleys, including the Yosemite, were never filled with lava like the rest, these grew ever deeper with the centuries. The great crust movement of the Quaternary period was not the last by any means, though it was the last of great size. There were many small ones later. Several even have occurred within historic times. On March 26, 1872, a sudden earth movement left an escarpment 25 feet high at the foot of the range in Owens Valley. The village of Lone Pine was leveled by the accompanying earthquake. John Muir, who was in the Yosemite Valley at the time, describes in eloquent phrase the accompanying earthquake which was felt there. A small movement, doubtless of similar origin, started the San Francisco fire in 1906. Conditions created by the great quaternary tilting deepened the valley from 1,800 feet at its lower end to 2,400 feet at its upper end. It established what must have been an unusually interesting and impressive landscape, which suggested the modern aspect, 
but required completion by the glaciers. Geologically speaking, the glaciers were recent. There were several ice invasions, produced probably by the same changes in climate which occasioned the advances of the continental ice sheet east of the Rockies. Mathis describes them as similar to the northern glaciers of the Canadian Rockies of today. For unknown thousands of years, the valley was filled by a glacier three or four thousand feet thick, and surrounding country was covered with tributary ice fields. Only Cloud's Rest, Half Dome, Sentinel Dome, and the Crown of El Capitan emerged above this ice. The glacier greatly widened and considerably deepened the valley, turned its slopes into perpendiculars, and changed its side cascades into waterfalls. When it receded, it left Yosemite Valley almost completed. There followed a long period of conditions not unlike those of today. Frosts chipped and scaled the granite surfaces, and rains carried away the fragments. The valley bloomed with forests and wildflowers. Then came other glaciers and other intervening periods. The last glacier advanced only to the head of Bridal Veil vale Meadow. When it melted, it left a lake which filled the valley from wall to wall, three hundred feet deep. Finally the lake filled up with soil, brought down by the streams, and made the floor of the present valley. The centuries since have been a period of decoration and enrichment. Frost and rain have done their perfect work. The incomparable valley is complete. End of Part 5